everyone. Welcome to MD Talk. I'm LaQuinta, your host. And for this episode of MD Talk, I am thrilled to have with me some very special guests, Jennifer Kennebrew, Shanice Goodlow, and Maggie Saddlemeyer. These three incredible women have kindly agreed to join us for a very special episode in aid of Rare Disease Day. Today, we're going to be discussing their experiences of having children with rare diseases and how we can advocate for better care for everyone. Ladies, thank you so much for being here with us. Let's get each of you to talk a little bit about yourself and let the listeners know who you are. We'll start with you, Jennifer. Hi, everyone. My name is Jennifer Kennebrew. I am a working mom of four. And my son, Nathan, who is now seven, was diagnosed as an infant with bilateral optic nerve colobomas and just recently diagnosed with retinoschisis as well. That disease affects his sight, so he is officially low vision. And we deal with other ocular conditions that kind of make things a little complicated, Um, but he is growing well and we're doing lots of things for him as a family and we're learning as we go. Um, And I'm really excited to be here to talk with everyone today. Thank you, Jen. And how about you, Shanice? Hi, good morning, everyone. I'm Shanice Goodlow, mother of two. My daughter, Maddie, was diagnosed with sickle cell disorder when she was about two weeks old. Sickle cell disease is a disease that affects the blood cells. It causes them to be sickle shaped, which then causes them to have trouble like flowing throughout your veins and throughout your body. That happening can cause her to have um, crises, which causes her to have like physical pain in her body. um, And also can all cause other things such as like, like strokes or other conditions that affect the body. So we're just taking it one day at a time and trying to advocate for her so that she can have the best life that she can. Thanks, Shanice. And last but not least, Maggie. I'm Maggie Settlemeyer, mother of three. My oldest daughter, Emmy, was diagnosed at the newborn screening with PKU, which is a metabolic disease that affects her ability to process protein. So we just have to count what protein she intakes each day and watch her diet. Thank you, Maggie. And um, all of you, thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing all types of things with you today and for you to be able to share your experiences about the, this very important issue on this this day where we we acknowledge rare diseases and, and how it does affect so many. So I think to get us started, just to let our listeners know a little bit about rare disease. So the Orphan Drug Act defines a rare disease as a disease or condition that impacts less than 200,000 people in the U.S., One in 17 people will be affected by a rare disease at some point in their lives, and there are over 300 million people with rare diseases worldwide. As of 2021, only 5% of rare diseases had an approved therapy. So Rare Disease Day, it exists to raise awareness and inform the general public of the impact of rare diseases, as well as campaigning decision makers to address the needs of those living with rare diseases. Here at MD Group, We're committed to going above and beyond to support patients with rare diseases and their families to access potentially life-changing clinical trials, and many of the trials that we actually facilitate are in the field of rare disease. For me personally, um, I think one of the reasons I'm so excited and just jumping up and down to have this conversation today is because I grew up with a sister with a rare disease, and I watched my mom advocate for her every day at school and with doctors, and it really impacted my life. Um, And now as a mother, it's like you realize just you know, what that journey was like for her at that time. 
And so talking to you ladies, I'm very excited. I know my mom will be tuning in and listening because hearing your stories is just important, I think, for everyone. So I'm going to kick us off. And um, I want to, if you feel comfortable, I would like for each of you to tell us a little more about your experience with rare diseases and particularly around some of the challenges that you faced as moms um, supporting your children. Um, and if you don't mind, Jen, we can start with you. Sure. Um, so like I said, Nathan was diagnosed as an infant. His disease, we got him a diagnosis when he was eight weeks old. So it wasn't anything that was um, similar to like Shanice and Maggie, where it was part of like a newborn screening or anything like that. But he has nystagmus also, which is kind of just a shaky shakiness of his eyes. And so we took him to his pediatrician. His pediatrician said, it's nystagmus. This is what that is, but it's usually caused by something else. So then we got sent to an ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist is the one who found the colobomas, which are just basically holes in his optic nerves where they didn't develop all the way. So um, that ophthalmologist found it, but I will say we went to one ophthalmologist to start with and he completely, he diagnosed the colobomas, but he got the location of the coloboma was wrong. So he had misdiagnosed the actual locations of where those colobomas are. And depending on where the colobomas are, depending on how much his sight is affected, we ended up going through this tailspin of emotions because that doctor basically said, you know, he's probably not going to be able to see his hand in front of his face. So just prepare yourself. And it's like, okay, you basically just told us, you know, that our child is blind, which is fine. We'll deal with it. But it was just weird to figure out, you know, what do we do next? So we definitely, we're very lucky. We stay in a location that we're only about an hour away from um, Duke University and they have a you know, renowned eye center there. So we were able to get an appointment there, but we had to wait four months to get that appointment. So we've always had issues running into access because you want, you know, with these rare diseases, you want to find that doctor that is able to give you, you know, has the most experience in that condition. And with rare diseases, there's just not that many doctors that you can go to. So when you find the doctor you can go to, usually there's a long wait <laughs> to get in to see those doctors. And so I would say that was probably our biggest kind of hurdle in the beginning. Once we were able to get in, we were very lucky and they've been great. We've been with Duke since then. But um, there's no treatment currently for what he has. There's lots of um, ocular rare diseases and conditions that have um, gene therapies, but for his condition, it isn't one of those um, that's currently happening. But we did find one doctor in the world who is currently running a study to, for the um, end goal to be to start having some kind of gene therapy. And so we were able to get um, signed up to do be part of that study, but knowing it may not ever happen in Nathan's lifetime, <laughs> this gene therapy, but hoping to actually include him and his situation that one day kids like him will be able to have some kind of other option to help them have better sight. All that to say, Nathan is low vision. He, um, when he's running around, you can't tell. He has adapted so well with his sight that you really don't, if you don't know, you don't know. Um, but where we face more challenges is when it comes to school, because he does need help when it comes to having things magnified so that he can see well and he doesn't get tired. Um, and so that's kind of been our biggest obstacle to date. And Jen, when you like, you know, you just talked about in the early stage of the, of the journey, you had a misdiagnosis, right? 
So how did you, how easy was it for you to find information? Like, how did you keep yourself so informed on what to do next? Because I feel like that would be extremely difficult. It was, it was a process. The first, like, I think week process was just understanding that your, you know, quote unquote, normal child isn't normal anymore. And you have to like emotionally get over that. And then you just start doing as much as you can to information seek. And, you know, of course you go on, you want to Google everything, but sometimes that can lead to such terrible, <laughs> terrible places that that can get kind of scary. So honestly, our, what happened first is I found a Facebook group of um, other families that have the condition that Nathan has. And I started there. They're the ones who mentioned the study at NEI. They're the ones who said, hey, my 18-year-old has the same diagnosis and look at her now. So that gives you kind of a hope of what you know, their life is going to look like. Because, you know, you're looking at your four-month-old baby and you're like, what's next? What's going to happen? What's that quality of life going to be? But it was finding a group that of people that could help you with the information, what to do next, you know, where to go, who to talk to, and, you know, look at us now kind of thing that really gave you hope and understanding of where to start. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that um, with growing up with my sister, it was before the age of Facebook. And so our support group like that we found was just, you know, my sister spent a lot of time at UNC Children's Hospitals and it was way too expensive to stay at hotels. So we were fortunate enough to be able to stay at the Ronald McDonald House. So we spent a lot of time there and we would just meet other families. Um, and every now and then you find one that had a similar situation. But it was just kind of having that support group that allowed us to talk about, oh, you're seeing this specialist. What did they tell you? And, you know, what are you, what's your next plan? But it was helpful to have that group and that community of support for sure. So Maggie, gonna gonna go to you and kind of ask you the same question um, to, to hear a little bit more about your story and some of the challenges that you faced. So uh, Emmy was diagnosed with the newborn screening. She was our first child. So we got home from the hospital and that day we got a phone call that said that it was probably just a false positive, but that we needed to come back for some other testing. And they told us what she had tested positive for, which was PKU. And then they told us, don't Google it. Just just wait and come in and then we'll explain everything. And of course, especially as a first time mother, we did not wait. So we Googled. And like Jen had said, we found a lot of scary information. Luckily, my husband was like, look, just stop. Let's go see what the doctors have to say. So we had to travel to Baltimore, um, where they do have a metabolic specialist. So we were lucky with that respect that we didn't have to really go searching for the specialist like Jen did. We had one pretty close. So they retested her and everything, and they, they told us that she did have PKU. Finding the support Facebook groups was really helpful for us. Just finding that kind of comfort and support from other families that were going through the same thing, because it's rare enough of a disease that we hadn't heard of it ever before. I mean, nobody in our family has it. So it's a situation where it was just all new information. So finding other people who did give you the support and the help and the hope of having been through all of this that you're now going through um, was extremely helpful. I would say our really hardest thing um, was 
kind of figuring out the whole medical healthcare side of it, especially with the metabolic diseases. Healthcare doesn't seem to feel like you need as much support or help paying for the food and everything because they they see it as a diet rather than a necessity. So it's been it's been hard trying to figure out like the healthcare side of it, getting her formula and her medication. Yeah, I can imagine that that's probably a commonality. Um, you know, trying to figure out the health, the, the insurance part, you know, and coverage and things like that for all of the different therapies and like like diet, like formula that people need with rare diseases. And that's probably something that could take up an entire episode, just tackling the healthcare side. So yeah, I, I imagine that's a huge challenge for for a lot of people. And that leaves us with you, Shanice. Tell us a little bit about your about your story. Okay. Well, like I said, Mad- Maddie was diagnosed when she was about two weeks old. And like Maggie, no one else in our family has sickle cell disease, you know, so we just have the ideas of things that we've seen like in the media or, you know, things I've read about. So they gave us like a book to read at the hospital when we finally were able to see a hematologist. And of course, the book presents you with like the worst case scenarios of everything. I was just like, why did you give this to me? Because now you have this idea of like this frail child who can't do anything, who can't go anywhere. Like, no, we kept suggesting, oh, well, your child can, you know, do these um, low activity kind of activities. Like, you know, they might be in the spelling bee or a debate club as opposed to being able to run around with the other kids. So um, I think the tricky thing about sickle cell disease is that it just the way it presents itself just varies so greatly from one person to another. Um, so you can't really predict what will happen. So again, like the others, I went to the Facebook support groups and they were really helpful. But, you know, again, you have some kids who have, you know, strokes at the age of like a year old, while you have other kids who don't have any kind of like issues, you know, until they're like teenagers or even adults. So you know, it's just a matter of sitting and waiting and trying to figure out what, you know, what's going to happen with your child. So, I mean, I think that's one of the greatest challenges. And like, I mean, I mean, I think the biggest challenge was just like the mom guilt because, you know, sickle cell disease is a genetic disorder. And so you keep thinking to yourself, well, what could we have done to prevent this? You know, what could we have done? What can we do now that we know about it to help her to not, you know, feel these pain episodes? And I would just say like, you know, just because she was a child and, you know, you're looking out for these pain crises and like, you know, she's a baby, you know, it's just, you can't talk. She can't, you know, express, you know, what's going on with her. So, and she, she was our first like Maggie. So, um, you know, we didn't know what was, you know, really typical for, you know, babies like, oh, is this a pain crisis or is she just hungry? So, you know, trying to sort through those kind of things as well. Um, so, you know, like I said, we just take it one day at a time, you know, try and, get her to speak up for herself, get her to to tell us, you know, when she might be having issues and just trying to keep up with those appointments. That's a really good point, Shanice. Like when she was an infant, because I mean, you're right. When you're a new mom, you just, you just don't know what's going on. So like, were there any guidance like from the doctors to like be able to identify those pain crises? Or was it just as simple as like, you just, you just don't know like everything else with babies, what their cries mean? Or did they, was there any kind of way that they were able to help with you, help you identify like this is a hunger cry versus a pain cry? Yeah. Well, I mean, with sickle cell, like they look, they tell you to look out for like swelling in your hands and your feet. Cause that could mean that, 
you know, that blood is like clump, uh, the blood cells are clumping up. So that would cause your fingers and your toes to swell up a little bit. Um, but you know, <laughs> she was a pudgy baby also. So <laughs> it was kind of hard to distinguish, you know, when things were escalating within her body and when she was just normal as well. Um, but fortunately, you know, our hospital was very open with us. You know, they have, you know, their 24-7 line that we can call. So, you know, we ended up calling, you know, a few times and they would give us like great guidance. So I think, um, like Jen was saying, it's important to have like find that good doctor or that good hospital that is going to be available to you and give you um, good advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that when you when you have children, they often people talk about how important your village is of like your your group of girlfriends, your parents, your family that are really there to help you through. But when you have a child who has a rare disease or any sort of disease, that village has to expand to our healthcare professionals and our medical institutions around us. And so it's important that they have like access so that they can be a part of that village. So Maggie, this question is going to be for you. I know that you're passionate about encouraging families of young people with rare diseases to find community support. And I think it's a really good segue from the comment I just made. So what is the importance of community to you in particular? I think it's so important because with these rare diseases, you're going to have so many people that don't understand. I mean, even family members uh, like have a hard time comprehending. I've been told so many times, well, she looks healthy. Well, she is healthy because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But you need somebody that understands like what you're going through on a daily basis. And it's hard for people that don't have any point of reference, like with a rare disease to understand like what you're doing day to day to keep your child looking quote unquote, healthy. So finding the communities and the programs that can help you support your child and understand you and give you that kind of comfort and support that you need, I think it's just so important to be able to help your child. Yeah, I agree. And like, I think, you know, we, everyone here referenced like going to Facebook, finding those communities, but, you know, Maggie, what recommendations do you have? I mean, and maybe it's just that, but for other parents out there who are currently looking for communities that understand what they're going through, how do you find those those groups of people? Well, we definitely started, We I think I'm part of like three or four different Facebook groups at this point. Um, so I think it's important going to any kind of social media, you're definitely going to find groups of people that just, it's the easiest way for families to get on and ask for help or lay out a situation they're having. The National Organization for Rare Diseases um, has been extremely helpful as well. Um, you can just reach out to them and explain any problems you're having. Um, they definitely helped us navigate our health insurance the first couple of months um, and showed us how to advocate for ourselves so that we could get better uh, coverage because they, they're, they're very knowledgeable, especially about the health insurance aspects of it. But we also found organizations online that help like our specific disease. So as far as PKU goes, there's an organization um, with a couple of mothers that are running it that are helping with cooking meals so that your meals can look exactly like everybody else's in the families. Or you're only cooking one meal, which is 
amazing. <laughs> um, so just being able to find those groups so that you can get the support and the help you need. But I mean, that's how we found them was off of Facebook. So we went to Facebook and then people helped you search out further from the social medias. We can't discount, I mean, to, to your point, like you guys all found it on found your kind of connections and ends on Facebook. Can't discount social media, but some of the orga other organizations that you mentioned, Maggie, are so critical and important. And um, you know, we'll be sure to include information about some of those organizations on the written um blog for this episode. So that if anyone listening does want to know more about how they can connect in through there, um, they can absolutely find some information there because I think that you know, going through and understanding how to, one, find care for your child, find the right medical um, kind of centers to help your child, and then understanding how to tackle the insurance. I mean, it is, it's an impossible ask, especially for a working mom. Um, so being able to have any sort of shortcut to getting information um, is just so important. Now, my next question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now direct my attention to Jen and Shanice, um, because you guys are both really strong advocates in your communities for rightful access to school support. Um, and I know from growing up with my sister how taxing that is um, to get the right support you need from schools. So what's your experience been so far? And I'll, I'll start with you, Jen. So I think in the beginning, um, we got Nathan enrolled in early intervention services through our state. And that was great. He started at, I think, six months old. And he was in that program until he was three years old. And that provided with lots of um, different therapies. He had um, occupational therapy. He had speech therapy. His first thing he had was um, he was assigned a teacher of the visually impaired, um, a TVI for short. And we had her from the moment he was six months old until he was five years old. So we were able to build like a relationship with that person who helped us navigate, you know, what can we do to give him the best sight possible? and then. In dealing with his sight, what what can we what can we do to make sure that he's able to maneuver the world and given the sight that he does have? And so when he started preschool at three in that early early intervention kind of program, and immediately it seemed fine. But then you realize that, you know, the funding that the school has for or for especially low vision or it just didn't seem that they'd had enough funding to provide the resources that they needed. So with Nathan, for example, he needed things that were magnified. Well, you know, a tabletop magnifier is about $2,000. And when you have only a couple of kids who are low vision or, or blind, that's the, it's really big. It takes months for the school to really approve it, even though they're supposed to provide equal access, you know, federally, they're supposed to provide that equal access. It, it was always a, well, it's on order. Well, it's going to happen. Oh, we're going to get there. And it it's just takes a lot. And it's very taxing as a mom because you have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing just to make sure that what he is supposed to have to make him most successful, he will have it. Um, so that's where kind of dealing with other families that have kids who are low vision, um, not necessarily to have his condition, but have other conditions that cause low vision has been really important because we share ideas, we share resources. And I would like to say that locally, um, through one of our groups, we were able to find the iShine Foundation. And um, 
that is a foundation that's local to us that helps kids who are low vision and blind, just giving them different experiences. For example, yesterday, they had a tactile um, visit with the North Carolina Symphony. So they were able to go to the North Carolina Symphony. They, you know, they put on a show so they could listen, but then they had a room where all of the kids could go and like actually touch the instruments and get some kind of instruction. And they can feel like what the strings are and they could feel like the different things. And it's that kind of experience that they're able to get that's more like one-on-one and it's based around what they can do and what they can see and what they can experience that it's a great um, foundation that we were able to find. So finding places like that, that helped us to connect with um, teachers that teachers, the visually impaired that could help and, be part of his experience to help him do everything that he needs to do. Like currently he has an, his own iPad that he's able to screen share with the smart board. So he doesn't have to like see the smart board. He just turns on his iPad and whatever the teacher's doing on the smart board is now on his iPad. So it's right there in front of him and he doesn't have to strain so much to see it. And that has been night and day. Just, he loves it one because kids love technology, but two, it, it keeps him part of the, the group. You know, he's part of the class now. He's not by himself with this huge laptop in a corner having to figure things out. He can be in circle time with his iPad and he can see. He can be just at his desk next to his desk mate and he can see. So it's things like that that I'm very passionate about because I feel like, you know, when you have kids who they call them um, low incident conditions, when you have kids that have those kinds of things, that they're just not as... Um, things are not tailored for them. And you have to really push as a parent to make sure that you get things for them to be able to make them successful. Yeah. And, and just that part you mentioned about having the, like your child be a part and the group experience in school. I mean, that's something that's so important. And um, that was something that we struggled with with my sister because she was, she was, you know, had disabled learning because of her condition And it was just always like those kids were separated out completely. And, you know, they just never had that inclusive nature, especially back then. And it was something my mom had to fight for every day because it's a part of growing up. And if you have a rare disease or not, you you deserve that right to be able to have that childhood experience where you're learning as a collective and you're getting that social awareness of others and being included. Um, So it's it's something that's so important to fight for. And how about you, Shanice? What's what's your experience been? so far? Well, you know, our first concern started when she started going to preschool, um, just because, you know, now she was leaving like the warm cocoon of our home and going out into the world with all these other kids. And, you know, of course, like you hear the stories about how, you know, kids with sickle cell disease, sometimes they get sicker more easily than the other students. Um, So it's a concern, you know, well, what if the other kids are sick? You know, is she going to bring that home? And unfortunately, you know, when she did start preschool, but, you know, a lot of kids um, go through this, you know, she was sick almost <laughs> straight for like a whole year, like just getting cold after cold after cold. Um, but I think part of it is like, you know, with sickle cell disease, like you really can't tell that she has like this condition. And so, you know, some knee jerk things that people do, you know, aren't always a good fit for her. So like, you know, if she gets a scrape, you know, or a bruise, you know, people automatically put, oh, well, let's put ice on it. Well, no, she can't have ice because, you know, that might cause a crisis or um, and just having them to remember those kinds of things, um, or just re- remembering that, you know, she can't go outside if it's just too cold or, you know, if it's too hot, you also have to look out for that. Also right now we have a 504 plan written for her and it says that she can't be outside 
when it's colder than 35 degrees. But we live in the Midwest where, you know, half the year is 35 degrees or less. So it's like, what is she doing to keep those, you know, relationships with the other students, you know, in a time like recess where that's where everybody, you know, bonds together. And so, you know, unfortunately, she spent a lot of time like in the nurse's office by herself, which to me, you know, I mean, she's a very social person. She likes to be around the other kids. And, and she does like she does like spending time with adults like they call her like the school school vice principal. And, you know, she'll she'll help all the, the people in the office. But at the same time, you know, I wish maybe she could go like into another classroom and like maybe help out the younger kids or something like that. But, you know, I think with the precautions with COVID and everything, they're still kind of concerned about, you know, having kids like being in different classrooms and possibly infecting each other. So, you know, it's. It's something that we just have to keep our eye on and try and work through you know, as she gets older. You mentioned, you know, like, obviously, just now you're talking about how you advocate, you know, for your daughter and her needs. Um, how can, like, we all kind of support that mission for, for, for advocation? Like, how can we um, support, like, in our own schools and advocate for other children who may need things that are different from the other kids? Because, you know, I think that, again, it takes a village. How do you bring everyone in together to make better inroads for everyone? You know, I think it's interesting because I am a school psychologist. And so, you know, I've been on the other side of that table for most of my career, you know, where I'm, you know, like the professional and I'm like giving out advice. And um, and I'm also very aware, like Jen was talking about, of the limits that the school has, like in the building, like as far as like funding or even just like support staff, like having those people that you need there. Um, and I think it's crucial that, that people, that the school staff is more open towards parents. Cause I think when we come to the table as a school, we have an idea of this is what we can provide. This is what we can do. Um, take it or leave it. I mean, I don't want to say it like that, but it's more like, you know, this is, this is what we've been doing and we don't necessarily know a different way to do it. So I think. I think it's best for schools to have like more of an open conversation with parents, encourage parents to bring their ideas. Like I can count on my hand how many parents come in and say, this is what I need for my kid. Like they think that the school knows everything when in reality, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't know everything about your child and all the things that they need. Um, so I think it's really crucial for both sides to come, you know, to have that open conversation about what it is that the, the student needs. Um, just so that we can, you know, have the best outcomes. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I think also like, you know, and maybe maybe that can come in the form of, you know, kind of meeting on the like teacher and administrative level, like with the principal, but also like, I guess also being very vocal and being a part of like your PTA um, and making sure that you have like a seat at the table where you can make some of those suggestions. Jen, um, you mentioned that you've supported many, many people to gain access to assistance and accommodations in the classroom. Um, and I guess this kind of connects really well with just what we were talking about advocating for our kids at the school. But what forms of support do parents have the right to ask for? And how do you even know what you can ask for? Because like to Shanice's point, you, you know, she says she can count on one hand how many parents come up and say, I need this or that, because the assumption is that the school's got it covered. So I will say that um, you really feel like you're kind of in this ether that you don't know where to even start. 
as a parent, you know, with a kid that's about to go into school, whether it be preschool or kindergarten or anything. So I can understand Shanice's point that, you know, a lot of parents don't come up and talk about it or, you know, one, there's, they don't know. Two, they're almost, I was almost scared of like retaliation from like the school district as a whole. Like I was, especially this past year, I've pushed a lot more. And so I've kind of been like, oh, do I, how far do I go? Because I don't want them to hold it against, you know, against my kid. And I have four kids in the school system. So I don't want them to hold it against any of my kids because, oh, that's the mom who, you know, causes all this noise. But, you know, all of our kids are supposed to have fair and equal access to education. And if that means they need certain things to get that, then they are required to have that. And Shanice mentioned a 504 plan, and there's also individual education plans, IEPs. And so like Nathan has an IEP that has, you know, goals that we want him to meet with the care that he's getting, but also, you know, accessibility things like all of his, all of his devices, all of his pullouts, all of the things that are supposed to be on there. And so I would say that any kid who has any kind of disability or rare disease that causes, that could hinder their education needs to immediately request for an IEP from their school district. So that's step number one is in writing request an IEP meeting with your school. And that's as simple as sending an email to the principal and vice principal and teacher that your kid has. And that's kind of step one. Once you go from there, it, it feels, it still feels really hard and confusing. So my other suggestion would be to find someone else in your friend group or on your, you know, your social media groups to find someone else that can help you understand what the next step that they took is and what they learned from it. Schools sometimes don't understand what they're going to need. Like our elementary school had never had a child with low vision go through their school and the school had been open for 15 years. So they really didn't. And because it's such a low incidence within their county and every kid is so different, they didn't know, you know, Nathan's kind of what they would call a high flyer. So academically, he's fine, but he just needs help making sure that he doesn't fall behind because he can't see. And so what they were used to was having a teacher of the visually impaired come in to teach students Braille because they're like, oh, well, they can't see. They just need to know Braille. And like, that's kind of where it stopped. And it was like, no, he doesn't need to know Braille. He just needs magnification. He needs, um, you know, in the double doors, there's always that middle bar <laughs> in schools. Like He would run into it because he just wouldn't like see it. So it was a matter of just putting yellow tape on those bars. And, you know, any kind of surface changes would confuse him. So it was a matter of just putting tape down so that he it would just signal his brain to say, hey, there's a change of surface here. Be careful. It was simple things like that, that they just never had experienced. But I had to go out and seek people to help me. And I really had help from other parents who had gone through it before me. And now, so I'm just kind of following that same path where I see parents who are struggling. You know, if I see a child at the store who is low vision and I might know the family, I say, hey, have you asked for this? Have you started this process? Let me connect you with this. Let me, you know, it's just within the community, I just like to make sure that I help people along because it is hard. And when you have schools that don't understand the need of it, you definitely need to make sure that you have someone who is there to be an advocate with you. Because as a parent, you put so much of your own like emotion into it 
that it's hard to like think through an IEP meeting. It's just so hard. You're like hearing all these things. All the teachers are saying things to you and it's just so hard to process. You want to make sure that you always have someone there with you who doesn't necessarily have as much of an emotional stake in things <laughs> to help you make sure that you're getting everything that you need. That's really good advice. Um, Shanice or Maggie, do you guys have anything you want to add to that? I, I think um, she's exactly right. I, Emmy has a metabolic disease, so it's not something that necessarily is going to impact her vision or her academics in the classroom. But um, having been a second grade teacher, I knew that as soon as we started school, I had to get her a 504. It's a medically necessity. So it's, it's not laying out the, the IEP rules and regulations, but it's something that the school system now for the rest of her educational career has to follow and abide by. And it's just getting that into writing so that even if, you know, kindergarten, it may not matter. But once they get further into their education, there might be these supports that they need. And it's important to just get it day one so that it's there in case your child does need it in the future. Yeah. And I would just I would just add that, um, you know, going to into IEP meetings and 504 plan meetings, it can be a little bit scary. Like they, they give you all these acronyms. And I'm like I said, I'm on the other side of the table. So I know we, we do it. And, you know, it's. It's not on purpose. It's just, you know, we're so used to these letters. We know them by heart. So we just say them out loud. But um, I think it's important, like, if you're not that familiar with, like, the school system, like, if you're unsure about things, like, finding, like, they're an advocate. So there are, like, you know, um, advocates for students with those kind of special needs. Like, sometimes they are, like, low cost or even free in the area. Um, so looking at looking up those advocates, they can say, you know, based upon, you know, your child's disability or your child's condition. Um, you know, these are the things that the school should be offering to you um, or even going to websites like, like the, I know there's like rights law where, you know, they detail, you know, what the IEP or 504 process is like. And they give you steps as to they give you forms, you know, that you can send to the school. So you don't have to, you know, come up with all the language yourself. They give you timelines um, for, you know, when things need to be done and also going to your own school systems. Um, website to get an idea of what those timelines are, what the different disabilities are, what the um the qualifications are, just so that you have an idea going in of what um you might be experiencing. Um and also asking for like drafts of things in advance, you know, sometimes because you get to those meetings and like they give you this document and they're like, well, we're gonna say, we're just gonna give you a verbal idea of what it says in here. Um and not go through everything like step by step. Or, you know, if they do still go step by step, you know, you have so much information. It's like an overload. So, you know, going into those meetings with those documents beforehand is just helpful. So you have an idea of, you know, what they're offering. You have an idea of what's being written down. And then you can also, you know, add in your own suggestions or add in your own things that you know would be best for your child. So just having that preparation is helpful. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, the preparation, I think that is like a really good piece of advice because you're right. It is information overload. And half of the things that you would have, you thought I'm going to remember to touch on these things when I get there, by the time you get there and you start going through everything, you've forgotten half of that. And then you leave and you have all the regret that, oh, I didn't ask for this. And I was going to say this. So I think that's a really good point, Shanice, like ask for it in advance, review it with your, you know, with your partner, with people you trust um, so that you know exactly what you're asking for and what you want your input to be when you get to that meeting. 
And that way you also, so you don't feel so rushed. Cause I feel like a lot of times when you go into meetings like that, you're very much aware of the time constraints that are around. Um, and, and you feel sometimes that you, you just got to get through it and you don't get all of your, your, your stuff in. So I, I think my final question for today is kind of a big one. Um, and it's really around like, you know, each of you, it sounds like you have access to some pretty um, amazing facilities um, and institutions that you can go to to help you through with this journey. Um, but we know that it's really not like that for everyone. And there could be cases um, where people are in more rural um, locations where they just don't have the access. And even for you, I think it was Jen, you mentioned early that access was one of the biggest challenges that you had, you know, finding the people who can help with your child's um, disease. Um, and I think it's a topic we talk about often on this podcast because, you know, it exists um, in, you know, in healthcare everywhere. The ac access to healthcare is a problem, but when it comes to rare diseases, it's even more an issue. So I would love to get each of your feedback and we'll start with Jen and go Jen, Shanice and Maggie, but I'd like to get each of your feedback on how we can all work together, everyone, not just parents who have children with rare diseases, but everyone, how we can work together to achieve truly equitable healthcare so that, you know, anyone who can issue, has these issues or has a child with these issues has access to the care that they need. Um, so Jen, we'll, we'll start with you and your thoughts on that. I think just for everyone to have awareness of the rare diseases and, you know, in essence, they're called rare diseases, but I think, you know, more people that are affected by a rare disease in their family or themselves than you actually know. <laughs> and so just having an awareness of how many people are actually affected by this and the challenges that they do go through and helping those foundations so that they can put more support for people with rare diseases. So they can put more support towards, you know, clinical research and getting more therapies out there for different diseases and more care out there, you know, give what you can, whether it be time, knowledge, funds, whatever you can to help families everywhere, because it really does affect more people that are in your circle than you really know. So I think it's just important to make sure that you keep, um, be aware of that. Teach your children about that. I was going to um, kind of jump in and say that earlier, that one of the things you can do is teach your kids about other kids who may be different. And, you know, I like to say that uh, the, the people on this call are kids, you know, are quote unquote, look normal. And so people wouldn't think of them as having a rare disease. But at the same time, you know, like Nathan, he has all of his devices, he has tons of devices in his classroom. And, you know, they're in second, they're in first grade. So they think, oh, well, why does he get an iPad? Why don't I get an iPad? That's not really fair. You know, teaching your kids that he needs an iPad to be able to do the same math problem that you're doing on your paper. So it's not, he's not getting anything extra. He's just getting what he needs and being able to teach your kids that, that, you know, you might have kids that have things that you don't have, but it's because they need them. It's not because they're having anything extra. They're just trying to get to the same playing field that you are in and, you know, having that kind of awareness and teaching that kind of awareness to your kids, but also thinking about that as adults for yourselves. Like the reason that these people need access is because they have these diseases and you please do whatever you can to help any kind of foundations or those families. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I know earlier in this um, episode, I mentioned staying at the Ronald McDonald house. And 
for anyone who doesn't know what that is, because why would you? Um, but the Ronald McDonald House is housing for for families who have patients um, at UNC hospitals that can't afford like to stay at a hotel and they're there for a long time. So they do um, very low cost housing based on what you can afford. And it's a nonprofit. So um, thank you for that, Jen. How about you, Shanice? What are your thoughts on this? And I think like generally we just need to be more, um, we need to work more towards like community building. I think that if we get to know each other, like get to our, get to know our neighbors, get to know our people down the street more, um, you would realize that like Jen was saying, like not everyone is like, you know, your average person. We all have our different issues that we're going through. And I think that if we were to build those connections, like we would be able to help each other. Like, well, I know this doctor who does this, who might be able to help you, or I know this organization, you know, that does this for these people who have these certain kind of conditions, you know? So just, you know, going out into the community, helping each other, like being there for each other, um, is really important just for us all to be able to support one another better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, community, community is everything. Um, and you know, like I, we've said, I've said a couple of times, it takes a village and, you know, having that community support will really can help with advocacy um, and, you know, help with, you know, help make healthcare, you know, bringing it to the community so that it's more accessible. And last but not least, Maggie, your thoughts. I think it's really important that we just really get the information out there. Um, it's, they're all rare diseases and they're all completely different because people aren't aware of them. And like we all said, we, we all Googled and it was not a good idea. So being able to get the right information, good information out to um, just the public, I think is just so important to be able to get awareness so that everybody is more understanding. It's hard to understand something that you don't have any information about. And if we're able to share more good information, I think it, it would create the awareness that we need so that people have a better understanding of what other people are going through. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously um, for Rare Disease Day, everyone's talking about it. All of the, the, the entire life science industry will be posting about it and doing things for it. But the conversation can't just happen one day of the year in, in February. We have to continue to talk about these things to raise awareness um, so that it is more common. And, you know, like personally, I grew up, um, you know, hearing about sickle cell all the time because we have family members with sickle cell um, disease. And I did not realize until I was an adult in this career that it was even a rare disease um, because it was so commonly talked about in my household. Um, and so, I, you know, I think to Jen's point, everyone out there probably is connected to someone with a rare disease. Um, and they they may be familiar, they, they may know it and not know that it's a rare disease, or they may, they may not even know it, but it connects so much, so many of us um, that it's worthy of talking about the, more than just one day of the year. Um, and so I think in closing, um, I would like to thank each of you for being here today to raise awareness, but I know that you guys do this all the time um, in your communities. Um, and so um, thank you for, for what you do to advocate not only for your own children, but for everyone with rare diseases everywhere. everywhere. And I think that for anyone listening who's kind of starting this journey or looking for resources, you have given so much helpful information 
um, today that anyone can use. Um, so thank you for that. For everyone listening out there, um, you can raise awareness too for Rare Disease Day um, by sharing photos, videos, and experiences. Um, if you go to rarediseaseday.org, you can find more information. And again, as we said, don't let the conversation stop on just Rare Disease Day. Continue to share your experiences and use your voice to raise awareness. If you've enjoyed our conversation today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. It does help other people like you who are committed to driving industry change find us. For more content around key issues in the clinical research industry, please feel free to follow us on social media at MD Group International on Twitter. You can also find us on LinkedIn by searching MD Group. You can also visit our blog at mdgroup.com where we will be doing a write-up of today's episode. Um, and we will include information for some of the organizations that you heard about today so that if anyone does um, need information on how they can find out more info, you can find that those details on the blog. For everyone listening, thanks so much for joining in on this very special episode in aid of Rare Disease Day. And until next time, take care and be well.